Welcome to the Modern Independent, where we are on a mission to assist modern independent workers in accelerating their growth, both personally and professionally. Every year, our parent community, Indie Collective, offers two 10-week accelerator programs known as the Launchpad. In these programs, cohorts of around 80 independent consultants and coaches, just like you, gain access to an expert-led curriculum, then work together to set bigger visions and goals for their business and lives. If you're interested in learning more about our 10-week Launchpad cohorts, go to www.indiecollective.co, where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for the next cohort. We accept applications on a rolling basis, and as a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. Just reference the podcast in your application. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of The Modern Independent where we are on a mission to assist aspiring entrepreneurs in accelerating their growth, both personally and professionally. Our goal is to provide our listeners with the necessary education, expert guidance, and inspiration to achieve greater financial freedom, fulfillment, and flexibility through their independent work. I'm Jan Almasy, and right now you are listening to one of three specific flavors of our show, as Sam likes to say, called The Launchpad. So today, I am sitting here with a guest by the name of Claudia, and she is going to introduce herself here in a moment, but I'd like to give a little bit of context as to why she's here. So today, and, and this is just you know going off of a little bit of background that me and her have been able to talk about prior to coming on the show, but she really focuses on helping growing entrepreneurial companies plan for and adapt to changes by designing structures, processes, and practices that move businesses forward without leaving people behind. She considers inclusion at each step, architecting solutions that reduce systemic biases. By getting to know her clients' organizations, values, and employees, she uses that understanding to build a human-centered operation solution that's based in 20-plus years of experience leading successful organizations. Claudia, welcome to The Launch. Thanks, Jan. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. Being able to record these shows is always the highlight of my week because like your, your LinkedIn bio kind of alluded you know, you, you have this experience, this beautiful depth of experience across kind of being in the industry, going independent, and then we'll kind of get into this kind of back and forth because this is actually your second time coming into the independent space. Yes. I first went independent in 2013 and then had one of those offers that was too good to refuse that brought me back into working for someone else for a few years and then went back independent a year ago. And, and that's something that, that you know, um, I want to start by just kind of giving you the floor to introduce yourself, where yeah. you're from, and we can kind of get a little bit of that background info. But one of the things that I know I, I want you to help hold me accountable to remind myself to hit on this is that, you know, you actually advocate for the job hopping and that kind of nonlinear career path, you know, kind of makes sense. And I think it's so interesting and, and to be able to connect with other people that are listening, you know, that feel like once you make that independent leap, that that's it. You know, and I think that the, the, the beautiful part behind the, that story of transitioning back and forth multiple times is that just because you take the leap in independence does not mean that if the, art, the offer that's too good to pass up comes up, that you can't transition back. That's the beauty 
about freedom of choice, you know, and really architecting your future. But yeah. without, you know, diving too far down into that rabbit hole, why don't we just kind of introduce the world to, <laughs> yes. to who you are? Yeah. Well, nice to meet everybody who's listening. My name is Claudia Richmond. I am based in beautiful Chicago, where I've lived for most of my adult life. And I have had a, a career with a lot of job hopping, working in professional sports, finance, advertising, software, in various project management, operations, creative leadership roles, and have uh, most recently been focusing on helping growing entrepreneurial companies figure out how to scale and take advantage of the opportunities that they've found without blowing up their culture. So I work primarily with smaller, say under 200 person companies that really care about their people and care about building an environment where people can grow and thrive while being a successful business. So balancing out that scaffolding that lets a company grow and lets it add more and more people while still having the heart that gave them the opportunity and that attracts these wonderful people to help contribute to creative entrepreneurial solutions. Wow. I love that. I mean, the, just that the analogy of the scaffolding of the company, you know, when, when you, when you picture the scaffolding of an organization in your head, it, what kind of comes to mind? Yeah. It's, it's a combination of a skeleton because it's about people. So it's the, the rib cage that's holding in the heart. But then I also think about um, like fanciful buildings. Like I, I love traveling. Barcelona is my favorite place on earth. And so I go, my mind goes to uh, Sagrada Familia, that wonderful Gaudi cathedral that's been under construction for 60, 70 years and has tons of scaffolding holding up this just fanciful, imaginative, beautiful work of art that takes concrete architecture and engineering to build this flight of fancy. And that's a lot of what I do is build the concrete engineering for companies to build their flights of fancy upon. Hmm. So, so as you're like, so you said you, you enjoy working with, with those growing entrepreneurial companies. Um, and, and, what are some what are some key things that you've noticed inside of those companies or ways that you've really found to help them as they're going through these massive kind of growth yeah. spikes or you know as they're attempting to figure out how to scale yeah one thing i do that that my clients find very helpful is i work very often with people at this teenager stage this almost preteen stage where they're like 20 to 30 employees and everything is hard. And so many of them think that once you've gotten past that, you know, that one pizza size, once you've moved from 10 to 12 people, oh, everything's going to be smooth sailing. But this phase is really the hardest, I think, because you have too many people for the founder to know everybody and to manage them and to take care of everything. You have too many people and too many needs to have generalists do everything, but you can't afford experienced specialists. So what I very often do is I'll come in with my 30 years of operations leadership and act in a fractional COO role 
and a fractional advisory role to the founders so that where it would cost, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars to hire someone like me full time, which is going to be a giant chunk of their budget, they can just get me for an hour or two a week to help them think about what could be looming ahead. What are some of the challenges they're going to be facing to prioritize um, the different hires and the different specialists that they'll need as they're scaling to give them advice on what to outsource and what to hire. And my biggest goal is to help them get to a scale where they can afford to bring in somebody, probably not with the level of experience I have, but somebody who has some experience in an operations leadership role that they that they'll then be large enough to need and they'll be able to pay for someone with a level of experience. So my goal is to grow them out of needing me. I love that. I love that. I we when we first started Apex, which is which is the the analytics marketing and kind of brand strategy company that I started over the course of COVID, one of our big missions um when I I kind of saw this need in the market, there was all of these people that they kind of knew where they wanted to go. They felt like they kind of knew what they wanted to do, but the other agencies were way out of their price park. You know, the mom and pop shops that were shutting their doors during COVID and the local businesses, they needed analytics. They needed online ordering. They needed Facebook marketing to, to survive. But all the larger marketing agencies in the area were, you know, the experts, quote unquote, were way beyond their price point. And so we kind of, I didn't know that that's what it was called at the time, because coming from a nursing background, I'm still trying to catch up on learning all of the business lingo, but I essentially became this like fractional marketer Mm -hmm. for these businesses. And it was like, Hey, you know, you can get by, here's the free software that you need. Here's the gaps that you might not be seeing. Here's some ways that you can improve what you're doing without drastically increasing your costs. And I think there's something really, really important about that where it's you know you need that expert guidance but you're not quite to the point where you need that expert guidance full time yeah and what too many places do is they'll hire someone they can afford who it's their first job out of school or they don't have experience doing it and then they're they're just not getting the value they have a body but they don't have any of the expertise or the network or the experience So a a piece of me is going to help them more than a full-time somebody who's less experienced. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, listener. Sorry to interrupt the vibes. I'll be out of your way in just a second. It's Jan, the head of community here at Indie Collective. Thanks for making it this far into our episode. Just a reminder that if you're connecting with this story, you can go to IndieCollective.co where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for our next cohort. As a podcast listener, you will receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. All right, I'll get back out of your way. Oh, 100%. I, I always... I mean, it's, it's the same idea as having a really good mentor. You know what I mean? I feel like I've had more conversations with my mentors that have kind of either done what I'm looking to do or they are where I want to be talking to them for half an hour about me headbutting a wall for the last week and a half trying to solve the problem. And they're like, Hey, did you think of this? And I'm like, Oh my (laughs) God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
No, I didn't think of that until you just pointed it out. But now I'm definitely seeing how obvious that was. When you were trying to figure out, you know, like what your value really was and, and kind of discovering yourself as you were entering kind of this space, how did you, what was, is there an initial situation or anything that you can kind of remember where you kind of like, yeah, there definitely is a need for what I bring to the table? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to step back a, a step further, I think, to answer that. And talk about how I kind of even got into this whole area of helping growing companies, because that's where I needed it, where I was the person who needed somebody in my shoes. Um, I was working at a large advertising agency and we were pitching, I believe it was a $96 million client. And it was about a year long pitch and we pulled everyone in the agency to work on it. And all of our current clients suffered because nobody was focusing on them. All of our employees suffered because we were working 80-hour weeks for about a year to win this. And then the best, worst thing in the world happened. We did win it. And suddenly, we had to triple in size in 90 days. And people were literally working on windowsills because there wasn't desks. There wasn't space. We didn't have computers. We were hiring anybody we could hire and the culture got diluted and the way we work got diluted and no one was happy. And I remember sitting in a meeting in the margin of my notebook saying, learn how to help companies get through change because companies do it all the time. And I needed someone to help me. And so I decided then, and this was about 10 years ago, I decided then that I was going to be the person to be able to help companies do this. So I, despite saying I was never going to grad school again, I already had one master's I didn't use. I researched change management and I, I honestly didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know there was such a field as change management. And I ended up finding that one of the very best programs for this was in my backyard. And so I enrolled in Northwestern's Master in Learning and Organizational Change Program. And learned a academic foundation to, to augment some of the things I'd already naturally been doing as a project manager and as an operations leader. And within a, literally a quarter of being in school, I realized that I wanted to go into consulting to help companies really focus on these problems rather than lead from within organizations. So that's kind of how I, how I learned about the need by needing it myself. And then went out and got the formal education to augment my experience in being able to provide this help to other people. I think that's, I think there's something to be said about that combination of the traditional education with the experience, spending a lot of time working in, in nursing and, and trauma psych and, and all that other stuff. Sometimes, you know, people encounter things and they don't know how to articulate it or they feel things and they don't know how to put it into words. And I think that there's one of the ways that I'm seeing that kind of translate over is that there's nothing more valuable than being able to speak a language about something or translate your yeah. experience into something that makes sense. And I think that that's, that's something that might be really maybe overlooked inside of some of the independence conversations that I've had is the value of that, putting yourself through the formal education, whether it's something like a actual master's degree or something like what we're doing here yeah. with Indie Collective, 
to be able to expose yourself is there are so many things. And I, I say this on this show all the time. There are so many things I didn't know. I didn't know. Yes. Yeah. And it gives you, like you said, it gives you vocabulary. It gives you framework. It gives you resources and it gives you a network, which I would apply those four things both to the grad program I did and to Indie Collective. Yeah. So you experienced this yourself, you know, and felt like I need a human to help me through this change and, and are deciding, okay, I want to go back. I want to become this person that is able to help, you know, other organizations go through this change. Once you got your degree and you kind of had those frameworks and you were trying to pair that with your experience, what was, what was the next step? Like what, what, what kind of took you from just having those frameworks and, and ideas and pairing that with your experience to actually kind of going through the iterations of then jumping into the initial consulting. Yeah. I jumped before I was even done with the degree. (laughs) Yeah. I, I did the last two quarters, I think of grad school while I was an independent, I just decided that it was time to take a leap and am fortunate to have a supportive partner who said, we'll try it. And I mean, the thing I I talk to people most often about when they're considering going independent is, and I'm sure this is no surprise, the money side of things. And I was working with a coach at the time who helped me get over some of my money issues. And what she told me, and I've shared with many other people that I thought was really important and really helpful to me, was to set a floor, to look at your finances and your savings and this was a conversation my husband and I had of once our savings goes below this level, I'll go find another job. Like I have this much room to experiment and to try building the business. And once we go under this level, I'll go back. I I have saleable skills and I could find another job if I needed to. I never needed to. The business was supporting me pretty quickly And I never had to do that. When I did go back and take another full-time job, it was my choice because it was a great opportunity. But having that clear line of this is when I have to start thinking about doing something really helped. But I was able to use my network at the time. I worked for a few of the ad agencies that I had been an employee of. Because they really needed somebody to do that kind of work and they didn't have anyone to do that kind of work of the growth and the change and the process optimization and the figuring out how to work smarter and adapt. So they brought me in to focus on the things that I wasn't able to focus on when I was running a hundred person department. Right. Right. I think there's something to be said about the the line um, that you use Uh, designing structures, processes, and practices that move business forward without leaving people behind. Um, Talk to me about just that, that sentence. Yeah. You know, like why, why is that so important to you? Oh, this fits precisely with the, the project. I'm one of the projects I'm doing right now where a client has come to me and said, we think our processes are over architected. They're not serving the needs of the business and people are quitting because it's so frustrated. So that's a process and a structure that is leaving people behind. So they've brought me in to help them figure out how do you change that? And I was just before this on a call with someone where I said that I'm a process person who doesn't really like process. 
and that I'm not going to come in here and do a re-architecture of the same pretty diagrams and flowcharts that you have. We're going to peel it back and get to what the needs are of the people who are using the process. And the best thing I can do in some places is, is say, you don't need a process. You need to get the three right people in a room and just talk about it. So it's so much more about what are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve? What are both the business outcomes? And then with the companies I choose to work with, it's also very much about the human outcomes because they, two and two, two a one, pride themselves on being places that people choose to work, that they grow, that they have really rewarding and fulfilling careers. So they care about not miring somebody in a 17-step process to do one small project. So to me, it's really about building the lightest weight structure you can that gets you where you're going, but leaves people time to own it and impact it and have autonomy and make their own choices and be creative adults doing great work. Mm. I love that. I let me think of how to articulate this exactly. I I think that I see some parallels. I, I always try to relate business structures back to other areas that I've been involved with, just that that kind of connect maybe in a different way. I think I think that what you said about the lightest weight structure, that's that's so important to understand. I had a, a commander that used to quote. I think it was Patton all the time. And he said, tell people what to do, not how to do it and be surprised by their ingenuity. Mm -hmm. And he was all about like, okay, we just need the minimum stuff so that we're hitting HR compliance so that we're hitting, you know, our checkpoints so that we're doing we're hitting all the boxes that we need to hit, but like the least amount of red tape possible between each of those steps. And it, I, I had the same thought process reflected on the when I worked at the hospital, there's some physicians that would leave you step-by-step -step processes of how they wanted things done. And then there were other physicians that were like, okay, here's a parameter set. Here's the full scope of your license that you're allowed to execute on. And here's the lab values or the vital signs that you need to keep the patient maintained within. And you have full autonomy now within the scope of your license, within this parameter set. And I can tell you, 10 out of 10 times as an RN, I would want to have yes. the physician that was prescribing those parameter orders to let me do my thing and take care of business because what happens to the other physicians, and this is what I think is ironic. I'd be curious to, to get your input on this. What happens to the physician that leaves you the step-by-step -step process is that if one thing goes wrong and you have no room to change anything, guess who's getting a call at two o'clock in the morning? Yeah to try to help me fix this problem because I have no room to wiggle. Well, and when you don't, and they need to, when you don't have that checklist, you're getting to know the patient. You're treating them mm -hmm. as your job is to solve their problem, not to, not to complete the steps on a checklist. So how do you focus yes. on what the real problem is rather than process for the sake of process? And it's about, it's all about people. And I, I, th I think it's so ingenious to having, you know, that sometimes it's not the process. It's just getting three smart people in a room to talk about it. 
I've, I found that over and over and over again. It's just, it's like if the right hand thinks that the left hand is doing something that the left hand's not actually doing, they put a whole bunch of steps in process to make sure that they're double checking on the left hand all the time to make sure that it is doing what it's doing. Whereas if they were to just get together and talk about it a little bit and be like, oh, we're actually trying to help each other. Or I didn't even realize that what I was doing in this process on this side was affecting you in such a way. Maybe we can streamline that and yeah. fix it and bring it together. Well, but, There's so many insights that have to come out of these conversations. Yeah. And the common feature of all of that, of the, the experiences you're sharing and what I was just saying about the project I'm working on now is it's trust. If you trust people, mm. you don't need to dictate every step they're doing because you trust that they're going to make the right decisions. And then they, right. they feel ownership. They strive to not betray that trust and to, to exceed expectations. If your expectations are high, most people are going to like blow through that door to really mix my metaphors. Mm. But um, it's, it's really about, it's about, demonstrating and generating trust. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that anytime humans get involved and this is what I'm, I'm like really starting to learn more about the operations side. I never considered myself somebody that would be interested in, in operations, right? Because to me for the longest time operations was like supply chain and purchasing and those types of things. Right. And yeah. I'm definitely more human centric, but I, I think it's really fascinating that when I was asking you kind of all of the questions prior to getting on the show, one of the things that you sent back uh, as for regarding your superpower was when you're working with people, things get infinitely complex because humans are humans. We have a lot of variables that come with us. But one of the lines that you had in here was like, you consistently are able to find a way to untangle really complicated messes into clear solutions. And the example that you used in that response was a pedal chart. Yeah. And, and so I'd like to, I'd like to kind of dive into what that looks like and, and explain the, the journey behind the pedal chart. Yeah. So this was actually that same giant, that was after we won that giant account and we were combining okay. teams from three or four different agencies. There were very complicated projects that involved 50 different people with very different areas of expertise, lots of interdependencies. So this pedal chart was this crazy multi-layer flowchart, just describing the accountabilities for each step of the way, who needed to be consulted, who was primary on it. And it just mapped things out in a very clear way. And it needed to be this prescriptive at that point because we hadn't built that trust because it was all people who didn't know each other, who were working together for the first time on really complicated work with very high stakes. So we needed something to be more prescriptive than I would generally recommend, but that was because I understood who the people were at the time and what the situation was. So it's like, it's like cooking, that you have to follow the recipe the first time and then after that, you can cook like I do, which is look at a recipe on your iPad in one room and then go in the kitchen and make it up. So you need, you need something that really explains every step to get your footing and to understand the people and to build that trust. And then you can improvise. So this was a way of distilling this very complicated process 
with a lot of people who needed to all understand and know what all of the other hands were doing so that the work could get done. So I was able to distill that down into a simple, easy to understand. You look at it, you know what it means, and you know where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing as the team was getting familiar with itself. Yeah, that, that makes me wonder. I, I love the analogy to um, to cooking, um, you know, and I, I really felt that as a nurse. It's like with the first couple of weeks precepting on the unit or actually probably my first two years of my career, I was kind of like, what the heck is going <laughs> on? You know, <laughs> um, yeah. you, you walk in the first time I walked into a unit and I got handed a intubation kit and some propofol. And they were like, hey, your patient is just coming up from ER. We're going to put them on the ventilator. I was like, huh, me? Okay. But now, you know, I maybe not now because I've been out of it for a little while. But going into the unit, I remember walking in and then, you know, craziest stuff happening and being able to improvise off the bat because I had been through it before. I knew what the <laughs> framework was. I knew what the steps were. And I was able to kind of be a little bit more flexible with it. I, I find the the kind of that concoction that you put together, you know, a large team working together for the first time in a high stakes situation, that is definitely an interesting variable set to have to deal with when you're trying to, you know, figure out what all of these processes are relatively quickly, especially the adding in that high stakes and that adrenaline rush pressure yeah. that people are experiencing. I'm wondering if there's, you know, through throughout your your experience is there maybe back to your cooking analogy are there certain ingredients that just seem to consistently pop up that you can add into those teams that are experiencing that trifecta of shenanigans that kind of help them work through that trifecta of shenanigans is going to be my next band name it's a, a great term <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think everything goes down to clear expectations. So again, it's about getting people in the room and talking about what they need and being as transparent as possible about this is what I do. This is what I'm good at. This is where I'm not as strong and I need somebody else to fill in here. And if people can be truly honest about that and not be trying to position themselves as heroes, and be vulnerable and ask for help and have a clear representation of their strengths, then you can fill in all of the other pieces and you can figure out who needs to step in and back someone up and who should be left and given freedom to explore in an area. So it's really about it's self-awareness, it's open communication and it's clear expectations. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of people get caught up um, in the vulnerability, you know, in that transparency of communication back and forth. And at least, you know, something that I've encountered, um, even in the, in the limited amount of time that I've been in the space so far, has been almost like a fear, especially in the startup world I'm seeing almost like a fear of establishing clear expectations because they don't want to make people feel like they're micromanaging them or they're putting too much structure onto somebody. But my, my rebuttal to that almost always is, you know, people, it's really hard for a human to gauge and feel good about the work that they're doing if they don't have something to gauge that work against. 
you know, it's, it's almost like walking into the woods and not having a path whatsoever at night with no flashlight. And then being told you're doing a good job, but then you look around and you're like, well, how can I tell that I'm doing a good job? Well, you, um, you gave that so exact that, situation when you were talking about the different doctors that you worked with, the ones that told you your parameters and left you the room to solve are doing exactly that. They're telling you what the expectations are, but they're leaving you the room to, mm -hmm. to play to your strengths. That's true. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That little bit, that little bit of wiggle room is where, I mean, that happiness really flows through for me, you know, is being able yeah. to know, wow, I'm actually bringing my knowledge to the table to assist within this parameter set. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking like all these people are constantly encountering complex situations when they're going through change. And one thing that, that consistently has been something that has echoed in my mind since I first met you was the first time that I ever experienced the shift between needing to be a phenomenal executor to learning how to be a manager. And for me, you know, I was never really a manager in the civilian workforce. But when I was in the military, there was this very distinct transition between the junior enlisted class, which is everything up to senior airmen in the Air Force, and then the non-commissioned officer corps. You know, when I made staff sergeant and technical sergeant, those were both very they're very large promotions because you're now transitioning officially from kind of being led as a troop to the first time that you're now responsible for troops and having to lead them. And there was a lot of fundamental like mindset shifts that you had to go through. And there's a reason why the Air Force makes you go through like an eight to 10 week training course on how to be a staff sergeant. And you actually have one of the things that you have done coming back into independence this this time around has has been this this mindful manager program so i would i would love to dive into the meat and potatoes of that because i think yeah. there's there's such a large application for that and it could be so useful so let's talk let's talk about the mindful manager program yeah how did you originally come up with that idea yeah i came up with that because the companies at that 30 to 50 person phase that i i was talking about before that's when they find that they need managers that's when they need somebody to be a layer, making sure that everybody is being taken care of. And what happens far too often in organizations like that, and in all organizations, is people become managers just because they've stuck around. That it's, you've, you've been an employee for 10 years, it's time for you to start managing people. And they're given reports, they're put in a different box on the org chart and set free, good luck, have fun. And nobody teaches them how to do it. And I was fortunate to have some really great managers early on in my career. And I was also a camp counselor, which I think I point back to that often, that mm -hmm. being a summer camp counselor, I think as one of the places where I developed some of the skills that I still use, you know, 30 years later, more than 30 years later. But it helped me develop some leadership skills and to be aware of what makes you a good, a good manager. And I've always prided myself on being a very good manager and have gotten great feedback from those that I've managed. And in working with companies as they go through this phase of growth, I realized that there was a need to provide them with training for this new manager class that they were bringing up. So I partnered with a colleague and friend, Heather Corallo, who's also an Indie Collective grad, in building out 
it was originally, it's funny, you said eight to 10 week program. It was originally an eight week program, but we realized that we had so much to cover that we now, it's now a 10 week program. For new managers, managers who've been managers for a while and were never trained. And we also talk about it for the manager curious. So, and what we mean by that is people who are thinking about where their careers go next, and they're unsure if they should explore being a manager. And I truly believe that you have to want to be a manager because you're, you're being given the gift of being entrusted with growing someone else's career. And that's a, that's a hefty responsibility and something that you should enter into because you really want to, and you derive satisfaction out of helping other people grow. And you have to also know that it is going to take a toll on your own individual career, that you're no longer just an individual contributor, and you may not be gaining the craft skills as quickly as you would if you were not managing people, but you're going to get rewards in so many different ways. So we put together this program that's based on an emotional intelligence framework that deals with self-awareness and self-regulation that talks about how do you manage your time and energy when you have these additional responsibilities. That whole idea of you know making sure that your oxygen mask is affixed before your child's, you know, how do you how do you keep yourself thriving? before you channel all your energy into helping someone else thrive. So we talk about vulnerability, like I just mentioned. We talk about what an important tool that can be for building relationships, for engendering trust. We talk a lot about feedback and communication styles. We talk about managing people who come from backgrounds that are different from yours. So how do you manage people who may be new to the workforce, who may be in a different socioeconomic class than their families were? How do you manage people from underrepresented communities whose lived experience may be very different from yours? How do you develop that kind of empathy and awareness? How do you become aware of your own biases so you're not foisting those on the people you're managing and you can mitigate them within yourself? and provide a equally positive experience for people from diverse backgrounds that you're managing. How do you deal with those situations that come up just in the general course of being a manager? How do you manage your friends? That's a big one that I suspect happens in the military as well, but happens a lot in these small close-knit companies that I work with. And it happened to me very often, you are pulled forward and suddenly you're your best friend's boss. That's weird. There are ways to do it. There are ways to do it really well. Um, But you need to develop those skills. So we go through 10 weeks of hour and a half sessions each week that are a mix of large group conversations that are facilitated by Heather or myself. And then each cohort is broken into peer pods where you have a group of people who are also going through the training with you to do different activities, to do role plays, to do different sorts of creative thinking exercises and to hold each other accountable. And we've heard from companies that have been through this that those groups really stay active and support each other. And again, this is going to be, this is my word for the, for the day, trust. 
they've built this trust in this small group. So when they're facing a challenging situation with one of their reports, they have people they can go through to brainstorm ideas and to help them with the emotional labor of carrying that weight of dealing with difficult situations. So it becomes both a support structure and a source of expertise and ideas. So it's been really, really well received. We're starting our second round with some of the companies we've worked with in the past, and we will be launching a little teaser for our December 9th Indie Collective session, a uh, cohort for independence as well. Because founders are managers, people who run small businesses manage their own teams. They may not think of themselves, themselves as managers, but they are. So we'll be doing a cohort for people who are not part of companies that are sponsoring whole cohorts as well. Yeah. I, I love how, how much of that echoes what I experienced at Airman Leadership School. You know, that, that Sergeant Academy, at, I went to McGee Tyson Air Force Base in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was down there for, I want to say it was eight. It was eight. I think it was eight weeks. But one thing that the military did that was, I think, very, very useful, and you kind of hit on it in the, in the Mindful Manager program, going with the word of the day, with, with trust, was, was really creating this ecosystem where I still will call the people that I was in that course with about business stuff now, because we yeah. learn so much about each other and how to deal with like off the wall situations and became good soundboards for each other and kind of built this vulnerability and rapport that, you know, there's a, a buddy of mine where I'm actually, I'm going to be in his wedding, you know, when we, after we went through airman leadership yeah. school together. And so, we we talk all the time about hey you know i'm encountering this i'm encountering this situation what would you do you know and even just knowing that i have that place available makes me a lot more confident as a founder trying to muddle my way through the business world and learning yeah. how to manage people that you know i can't rely on rank or grade or or mission from the air force i'm kind of yeah. kind of crafting that value structure from the ground up which is a way different experience than leaning on you know 60 plus years of history to guide the the transformation. So I think that that's, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm really interested in one bullet point specifically on the, on the flyer where you talk about creating psychological safety with your direct reports. I think that that's so important to be able to kind of create that bubble of safety um, when you're, where you're starting to have those conversations, especially when you're delivering and receiving that meaningful feedback, are there any, you know, ways, and I don't want to dive into too much of giving away what's in the course, yeah. but what are, what are some, what are some ways that somebody, you know, that, that they can start to try to create that safety or make people feel like it's a safe place for them to be vulnerable as a manager? Yeah. I mean, I think one important thing to, to call out is that there's an inherent power imbalance in that kind of relationship. So naming that at the offset, and that's something we talk about in the training, is that it is incumbent on the person in the power position to adjust and to be aware of the needs of their report and to adjust their communication style and their communication preferences to that of the report. And so that's something we really stress in manager training is it's not about meeting someone halfway you have to go further as the manager. 
So it's up to you to take the initiative and to change your preferences to make it a comfortable space for them. But then it's about it's about curiosity and it is about that vulnerability and it's about it's about being people and it's building any other kind of relationship. So we do talk about boundaries. We talk about what's appropriate to talk with your reports about and what's inappropriate and what to do if things start veering into that squidgy territory. But it's really about being curious and truly listening is how you start building that kind of safety. Yeah, I'm, I'm teleporting back to a situation that I encountered when I was in the, the military early on. And it was, it was kind of this, my first time ever doing evaluations with my troops. And I was horrified. I was like t terrified to go into this situation where I was going to have to evaluate my troops. And I remember sitting in there and there was one of my female troops had come in and we're sitting down and we're kind of going over her, her evaluation because they, we do a, a six month airman's check-in and then every year we do an evaluation and we're sitting there and I could just tell like something was off, you know, like my, my nursing smoke signals or smoke alarms, my internal smoke alarms were going off. And I was like, okay, like we're, we're not making a bunch of eye contact. Her body language is really shut down. You know, we're, we're giving a, me one word answers to open-ended questions. There's, there's all of these hints, right? That there's something else going on. So I actually, I took the piece of paper, I took the evaluation and I flipped it over and I slid it across the desk. And I said, okay, I was like, we're getting out of evaluation mode for a split second. I was like, right now it's just me and you here. Like we're going to, we need to talk about what's going on. I was like, I'm noticing that there's a little bit of, you know, some contention or apprehension or anything like that. Talk to me, like just person to person. None of this is getting written down on this sheet, you know? And immediately she like is, is distraught. She's crying. There's a bunch of stuff that's coming out about stressful things with school and how she's nervous mm -hmm. about career changes and the situation that she encountered while she was at college and and all of this stuff kind of came out of the woodwork as soon as I took that initiative to kind of flip yeah. it over and say okay I'm not I'm not grading you but I can tell something's wrong talk to me you know and then what that ended up leading to was was us being able to kind of work through that together we you know got through the evaluation and graded her on her performance at work and then we're also able to get her resources to kind of help her through what was going on on the civilian side, which, and I kind of reminded her, I was like, listen, all of those external situations, I know that that pressure was piling up. It has nothing to do with, you know, how well you have performed at your job. You know, I'm not going to take that. And if anything, I want to be able to help provide you additional resources and, and help you get through that. But I, I, and, and ever since that moment, we had this beautiful kind of transparent relationship yeah. where we were able to kind of, she came forward and we were able to kind of have this awesome dynamic, but that's immediately, we kind of came into my mind yeah. and why I was so curious about that psychological safety piece, because that's exactly what you that did. was something where, yeah, that, yeah. that, that meaningfulness for me, experiencing that as a new staff sergeant for the first time, trying to go through evaluations, I'm like, man, it was an intense evaluation to go through for my first round, but it was, it was so, it taught me so much about what it means to be able to pay attention to those signs and really, and I think that comes down to be as a manager, knowing your people. Exactly. You know, and, and being able to pick up on that body language and some of those other signs that somebody might be displaying. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, I think that's such an important piece. I, um, I would love to, 
kind of take, you know, one of the, one of the questions that I really, really enjoy asking is, is if you were to gift a book, what would that book be? Yeah. And why? The book that I push and on. I was just going to say, I mean, the, the, the book that, that you kind of pushed out was Gretchen Rubin's better than before. And I had read it, but it's been a while and I loved I love, love, love what she talks about when it comes to habits. So I'll just like, just give you the floor and, and let you take that away. But, but better, better than before by Gretchen Rubin. What is, what is your take on that book and why do you find it so important? Yeah, I, I, I found it really impactful in managing people. Actually, it's a great tool for managers because it helps you dissect what motivates people. The way she writes about it, it's in the framework of habit change. And she, like everyone else, breaks the world into four neat categories because the whole world can so easily be broken into four easy categories. But her four mm-hmm. categories, and no one fits cleanly into them, but it it gives you a good guideline for understanding what motivates people. And for example, she talks about people who are what she calls obligers and they do things because they're supposed to. If it's a rule, they're going to follow it. So if you have people like that, that you're managing, you just have to explain the rules to them and they're going to follow them. There are some people who are questioners. I'm a questioner. You could give me all the rules in the world and I'm like, nah, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not going to follow it. I need to figure out what makes sense to me and it needs to play to my own motivation. So if I'm managing someone like that, I'm going to have very different conversations and it's going to be like, why do you want this promotion? What steps do we need to take to get you there? What's going to be most important and most impactful to you? Then there are other people who do best when there's social obligations attached. So people who, this is the typical, if you want to exercise more, have a gym buddy. Have somebody who's going to meet you at the gym at six every morning because you're not, while you might disappoint yourself, you're not going to disappoint them. And that works for a lot of people as motivation. So if you're managing somebody like that, putting them into a cohort situation is going to be far more successful than giving them a task by themselves. So she just provided this really helpful framework of how people make changes to their behavior and what motivates them. And she also talks about people who do better in habit change by moderating. So this is, this is my husband who can have three M&Ms a night and be fine. I am somebody who's black and white. If there's a bag of M&Ms, I'm going to eat all of them. And if I don't want to eat M&Ms, I don't buy them. I can just cold turkey say, I'm not eating chocolate for three months. And I'm fine because I can flip that switch, but it's understanding how people work and what motivates them. And that can be really powerful as a manager or as a mentor in helping people achieve their goals because habits are just a step in goal, goal achievement. So thinking about it at the habit level, like she does really can be extrapolated out into helping people develop and grow in their professional lives. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's super important to be able to um, try to figure out what motivates a person, especially as a manager. If if I had to think about um, some of the biggest 
shifts or the differences between being a good executor and being a good manager, right? It's like being a good executor, you're focused on your craft, you're an expert at your craft, and you know how to translate and operationalize what somebody gives you and put it into practice and put it into work. And what was really difficult for me when I first transitioned into being a manager and I mean, and now even just leading, leading my company and trying to do independent consulting or anything else that I'm involved with, it's the difference was it's like, okay, I'm no longer doing the, the executables. You know, I may not be doing some of the deep down and dirty execution, but my job now is to take one step back, which was actually really hard to get used to. It's like, how do you take one step back? And then instead of being the one laying the asphalt, kind of be the person that gathers the supplies. And how do you transition your framework from, okay, I need to know, I need to be the person that's, you know, shoveling the asphalt out of the back of the truck and flattening on the road to figuring out how to get the truck there, the people there and all the equipment there so that they can be successful. Um, have you, have you found that that's an obstacle for people when they transition psychologically from going from being an executor to figuring out how to empower people to execute? Yes. And I, I think there's another layer to that. It's how do they derive satisfaction from it? Because they're so used mm. to being the person who did it and who could look back and say, that was me. Whereas now they're enabling and facilitating people. So how mm. do they shift? where they derive their value from. That's very, it's very, very common. That's, I mean, I didn't even think about that second half of that equation, you know, the, that derivative of value. Cause now that you say that, I mean, it, there are definitely periods when, when that initial transition happened where I'm like, man, what am I doing? Like, do I even have a job anymore? Yeah. Am I, yeah. am I actually contributing to the team? I don't do And, and if I were, yeah. Right. And if I were to talk to any of my team members, they would be like, yes, of course. You're like, what do you mean you don't know what you do? Like, we would yeah. be so lost if we didn't have it. And then, and then I'm sitting here like, well, okay. I mean, I guess, you know, that makes sense. It, it, but it takes a little bit of that getting used to. So I could definitely see how even just understanding that that is a thing and being aware that that happens, that it is normal for that transition to experience a little bit of that, like, you know, on un yeah. ability to identify where you're deriving value from is it's actually reassuring to hear that that's a, that's a normal part of that transition process. Very normal. Yes. So we're ending with all of these, mm -hmm. the habit formation, the mindful manager courses, the transitions back and forth for across your career and really kind of settling into this, this, um, now change management and, and really empowering managers and other people to not leave people behind as they're going through change. Um, if, if somebody were to try to come into your field of, of practice, are there, are there any pieces of advice that you would like that, that you could pass down the line to say, Hey, if you, if this is something that sounds interesting to you, this episode sparked your interest in what this is. What are some of those pieces of advice that you may pass down the line to maybe make somebody else's transition into, into your role a little bit lighter? And I'll, or I'll, is that even possible? I'll tie this back to the question I'm supposed to remind you of, which is the job hopping. So I, I think that working lots, working lots of different places is the reason why I'm good at what I do. I worked in a lot of different contexts. I've worked in small companies. I've worked in large companies. I've worked in 
big corporations. I've worked in startups. I've worked in just so many different kinds of organizations. So I've seen what works and what doesn't work. And I've had this great playground to experiment. And I just feel like moving from job to job, you gain something at each place. And when you stay in one place, in one organization, you become really expert in how that organization adapts and how that mm. organization makes decisions and functions, which means you have a hammer. You don't have a whole toolkit. So by working in other places, you build a bigger toolkit and you see how different personalities and different cultures work. So that is why I'm an advocate for job hopping. I think you just learn so much if you want to work in this kind of area. I think you learn so much about different organizations. And that gives you just such a broader frame of reference to help companies through change and to help them mm. know what's happening. I don't think there is a shortcut. I think that you have to put in time to gain the experience to have a, a big toolbox, to have lots of different experiences that you've been through or that you've seen that you can draw on. So I think starting to learn how to do it is taking operations roles in different kinds of organizations um, and being aware of the people and always favoring people over process and focusing on what problem you're trying to solve and not on just making a pretty chart. Cause it's really, it's about the people and it's about the challenges they're facing, be it as a part of a company and at, or as individuals. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have anything to add to that. So <laughs> I, I think that, that that was beautiful. I mean, I, I love the, the people over process. I think that that's so, so important. So Claudia, thank you. My pleasure for coming onto the show today. I yeah. appreciate your time. If if people want to learn more about you or find your yeah. work and and what you're up to, where are some good places that people can go to find you? I know you're on LinkedIn, yeah. so you can find her on LinkedIn for sure. Yes, I am on LinkedIn. I think I am the only Claudia Richmond, so easy to find there. Also on Twitter at Claudia Richmond, and then my company is called We Grow Forward. So WeGrowForward.com is another place to find me. That is phenomenal. Okay. Well, if you guys have any more questions for Claudia, feel free to add her, connect with her on LinkedIn. I'm sure that she would be open to answering any of your guys' questions if you want to shoot her some messages. And I am really looking forward to having more conversations with you in the future. Great. Me too. Thanks so much.